All right, 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, we're going to read a pretty long passage, um, but uh, you need to get the whole story, and then we'll come back and we're going to focus on a couple different parts of this, okay? Verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it in the wood and put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered and said, it's well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made, and at noon, Elijah mocked them. Those of you who believe sarcasm is a spiritual gift, here is your verse in the Bible. Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey. Perhaps he's asleep, and he's got to be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. And Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of of, of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, here's his prayer. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, and this people, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let no one escape. And they seized him. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon, and he slaughtered them there. Let's pray. Father, what we need more than anything is for you to show yourself to us. God, we need to see your glory. We need to see your power and your righteousness and your love and your mercy and your strength. God, show us who you are. Show us your glory. Lord, just as you showed the people in Elijah's day, 
your power and glory. Father, show us through your word and through your spirit and through nature and through providence and through, God, whatever means you choose, God, show us your glory. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we uh, picked up with the life of Elijah, and uh, the story last week, uh, Elijah appeared to Ahab, the king, who was worshiping false gods, a false god named Baal. And Elijah told him, look, because of your idolatry, it's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And then immediately, God takes him. He tells him to go out in the wilderness. Elijah hides himself. And for three and a half years, God miraculously provides for Elijah. That was last week's sermon. We talked about trusting God for his provision, trusting God to provide for us. And so today, three and a half years is over, and God tells Elijah, all right, now go, uh, go show yourself to Ahab, and we're going to bring this thing to a head. We're going to settle this deal between me and Baal, okay? And so Elijah goes to Ahab, and, and Elijah says this to the people, okay? He says, how long, this is in, in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions, okay? If, if the Lord is God, then serve him. If Baal is God, then serve him. Now, now, the point that I want you to get is that the people were worshiping a false god. However, they had not completely turned away from the true God, okay? So, so they're limping. It's what, what, what Elijah calls limping between two opinions. You see, a lot of times when we think of idolatry, we think someone has completely turned away from God, and they're going and worshiping a statue or worshiping a false god, and they have nothing to do with God. Sometimes that's the case, but there are other times where, where somebody still has the Jesus loves me bumper sticker on their, on their chariot or their car, and somebody still has the cross-stitch painting of the Psalm 23 on their wall, and they still have a Bible on their coffee table, but they have incorporated another God into their life. Okay, that, that was the case here. The people had completely rejected God. They were limping between two different opinions, okay? They, they were wavering. Your Bible might say hesitating. They, they were waffling between two different opinions. They had two different gods that they were trying to serve, and you can't do that, okay? And so Elijah says, how long are you going to do this? How long are you going to be limping and hesitating and wavering between two different directions in your life? It's real easy to tell. I don't know if you ever noticed this, but it's easy to tell when someone doesn't know where they're going. You ever notice that? You can be driving down through Woodward, and you can be behind somebody, and even though you have no idea who they are, you've never met in your life, you never talked to them, you can tell they don't know where they're going. Now, how do you, do, how do you know that? Well, it, when they get to a, an intersection, they waver, they limp, they hesitate. You know what they do? They slow way down, and they look both ways, and, and you can hear them talking. You can't hear them, but you can see them talking in the car, and all of a sudden, they gun it again, you know? And then they're in the left lane, then they're in the turning lane, then they're in the right lane, you know? And, and they, you can tell these people don't know where they're going. They they don't have a clear direction in their life. In the same way, you can look at people's lives and you can tell, man, they don't have a clear direction in their life. You know, they, they say they love Jesus or they say they love God. They, they say they have a relationship with him, but you know what? They're not following him here. And they get to this intersection in their life and they waver and they, and they limp and they hesitate and, and they waffle between two. Is the Lord God? Can I follow him? Can I obey him? No, I don't really want to in this instance. I don't want to serve him. I think he's God, but I'm not going to serve him. I think he's God, but I'm not going to give to him. I think he's God, but I'm not going to worship to him. That, that's wavering and it's limping and it's hesitating. And Elijah says, look, you got to stop doing that. you got to decide in your head, in your heart, in your mind, who's God. And if he's God, then you got to serve him. You know, you can tell that when something is awesome, people make a beeline to it. Okay? When they, when they believe it's awesome, when they believe it's what they need, when they believe it's wonderful, man, there's no hesitating. Okay? We never pull up to the playground in our van, shut the, shut the van off, Open the doors up. The kids never do this. They never say, I don't know. I can't decide whether I should stay in the van or whether I should go play in the book with me. You know? 
None of them ever say, you know, I think I'm just going to sit here in the grass. You know, maybe your kids do that. My kids never do that. You know what they do? We open up the van. They go directly to the playground equipment. All right. My little kids. I don't think Hannah probably would. She'd probably sit in the van. But, you know, I'm talking about little kids. All right. I mean, they, they know hey, that's the thing I want. That's the thing that's awesome. That's the thing I need. I'm going to go directly for that thing. Now, there's other times where they're not sure. You know, we, we may have told them, hey, this is a cool thing. This is a, but, but they're skeptical. They've not seen that it's really a good thing. You know what? Then there's a lot of wavering. There's a lot of, there's a lot of waffling. There's a lot of hesitating. And, and so you got to figure out, Elijah, you got to figure out, look, who is your God? Who's your God? Are you committed? Are you all the way? Because if God is God, then you got to serve him. If God is God, you got to worship him. If God is God, you got to be all in. Because there can't be any of this, well, I'm sort of worshiping. You know, you can't be a 51%er, okay? You can't be, I'm 51% for Jesus, you know? Oh, today's not one of my 51%. So, you know, I, I'm not worshiping today. I'm not serving today. I'm not obeying today. You, you, you can't waffle between two different opinions. Listen, Jesus does not allow that. God does not allow idols to compete with his allegiance. The Bible says that Jesus is the, the groom and the, and the church is the bride. And, and that we, we are his wife, okay? Well, let me tell you, I, I don't know any husband for which it's okay for his wife to have another lover. I don't know of any, any husband that says, hey, you know, as long as I'm in the top three, I'm okay, you know? Hey, I don't, as long as I'm up there, you know? No, I mean, that, that's ridiculous. We know it's a big deal. Idolatry, you not giving God your affection, giving God glory, giving God of yourself is a big deal. God will not settle for his glory, his worship, his love, his affection to be given to somebody else. That belongs to God. I don't know if you understand that, but that belongs to God. Your worship belongs to God. Your affection belongs to God. Your service belongs to God. And when you give it to something else, you are stealing from God and giving to somebody else. And that's not okay. Idolatry is a big deal. Now, some of you may be saying, well, Pastor, I don't think we have idols today, not in Woodward, Oklahoma. You know, if you go over to another country, you know, you can be driving down the road and you might see an altar and you might see a little stone statue there and you'll see some food. Somebody's left their hamburger there and their french fries and their corn and their whatever. And, you know, they're making a little offering to their God. You say, we don't have that in Woodward. We're not silly people like that. We may not have those kind of idols, but let me tell you, friends, we have an idolatry problem. You know, even in the New Testament, 1 John chapter... uh, 5 verse 21, uh, it ends by, by John saying to the church, little children, keep yourselves from idols. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, Paul tells us a very interesting thing. He says, covetousness is idolatry. Okay, now, now let, me, let me assure you, there is no lack of covetous in Woodward, Oklahoma in 2011. Okay, there's plenty of that. There's plenty of that everywhere. There's plenty of covetous. Covetousness is people wanting what they shouldn't want, desiring what they shouldn't desire. And there's lots of that. And so if covetousness is idolatry, if it's a root of idolatry, then we certainly have a problem with idolatry. Now, let me give you a definition right out of Webster's Dictionary of, of idolatry, okay? Here, there's two definitions I'm going to give you. Number one is this. The worship of a physical object as God, okay? That may be the one that's kind of stuck in your head. You're thinking of someone bowing down to a statue or to a uh, a window or to something, okay? But let me tell you the second one, okay? Immoderate attachment or devotion to something. Immoderate attachment and devotion to something. And you might be thinking, okay, what's what's the word immoderate mean? Well, the word moderate, you know, moderation, that's like an appropriate level of affection and devotion to something, okay? A moderate attachment to my phone would look something like this. 
when I forget it, which I did this week, actually. I think it was Thursday. I forgot my phone, and I, and I get to, to, to work, and I think, ah, it's okay. I can go without my phone today. People can call me on the church phone if they want to get a hold of me. But then as the day goes on, I realize I don't know anybody's phone number without my phone, you know? And so I end up like I'm Googling. I'm spending all my time Googling people's phone and trying to go on the website and get there, you know? And so and I don't know what my schedule's like because it's on my phone. And so finally I realize I need to go home and get my phone. So I go home and get my phone, you know? Okay, that's moderate attachment. There's an attachment there, but it's probably an appropriate level of attachment. Now, let me, let me give an example of immoderate, okay? I-M-M, okay? That's not moderate. Immoderate attachment or devotion to a phone. If you forget your phone and you realize it and you get to work and you start crying, that's immoderate, okay? That, that's over the top, all right? If you get to your break time at work and you don't have your phone and you sit down with your little snack and you pull your hand up just like automatically to look at Facebook and you're like, oh, what's happening? You know, I don't know what's happening in the world, you know? Okay, that's probably immoderate, okay? If you feel like your life is, is, is over because you don't have your phone and you feel like you don't have an identity and you feel like you don't know if you're gonna make it through the day, that's an immoderate attachment or affection to your phone. Does that, does that make sense? And so, so what he's saying, saying here, what, what this definition is saying is that our worship of something, our, our attachment to something, our devotion to something, if it's not consistent with the actual value, that's idolatry, okay? Let me read that again because this is really important. Idolatry is loving and being devoted to something in a way that is inconsistent with its actual value, okay? Everything has an actual value. And when you attach more devotion, more attachment, more love to something, whatever that is in your life, then it's really worth, that's idolatry. Okay, now some of you are gonna push back and you say, well, pastor, how do we really tell how valuable something is? Because that could change from person to person, right? You might have a little trinket at your house that you got from your great, 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 great grandma and it's really not worth anything, but it's worth everything to you. You know, because it has all this sentimental value. And so you say, well, that's very, you know, how do I know it's actual value? Well, okay, some of that stuff is true. Okay, I'll give you that. But the real, the big things in life, I think have an actual value. I think God would say, There's an, this is worth this, this is worth this, this is worth this. Okay, let me give you some examples. A child is always more valuable than a snail, okay? Now, I don't care if it's your favorite snail. I don't care if it's a snail that you've trained to do circus tricks. I don't care if it is the only living snail left on the entire planet Earth. A child is still more valuable than a snail, does that make sense? I mean, things have an actual value, okay? A dog is more valuable than a leaf, okay? If you came to church and said, Pastor, I paid $700 for this registered leaf, I'd say, You're, you got ripped off, dude, you know? Because a dog is more valuable than a leaf, okay? Now, dogs are more valuable to some people than they are to others. I understand that. But, but the principle is they have a realm of value there that's realistic, Okay? Your marriage is more valuable than your golf game. It is. You laugh at that. People have lost their marriage over their golf game, okay? I mean, that's true. That's true. It's real, okay? And so things have an actual value. God says in his word, your marriage is more valuable than any of your recreation. It's more valuable than your job. It has an actual value in your life that you should give an appropriate level of attachment and devotion to. And so things have an actual value. And whenever we see that those things are out of whack, we immediately know that. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a house fire here in Woodward. And let's say there's a family stuck inside and there's children up in the room sleeping and they can't get out and our firefighters go in and let's say that J.P. Shirky comes out after about 10 minutes coughing and, and, and he's got something wrapped up in his arms and he comes out and he says, I got the snail, you know, okay. 
immediately we know that's an, that was idiotic. You know, you walk by those sleeping kids and you save the snail. I mean, I, I can't imagine anybody saying that's right. We know that's wrong. We know that that did not have the appropriate value for you to risk your life for or for you to risk the lives of those children for. And so things have a value, right? Well, let me tell you this, church. You may not believe it. doesn't matter. It's true. God is the most infinitely valuable thing in the universe. Did you hear that? He, he is, okay? He is. Joy, success, satisfaction, peace, healing, glory. God tops out the charts in every one of those categories, okay? Now, I know you may not feel it. You may be saying, no, I don't feel it. I think, I think, I think the 20 bucks in my billfold is more. You may, you may say that. That doesn't mean it's true. What I'm telling you is true. God is the most infinitely valuable thing in the universe. And therefore, idolatry is the human tendency to value something or someone in a way that hinders our love and trust for God. See, whenever you put something in God's place, whenever you have an immoderate attachment to something, whenever you love something more than you should love it, whenever you put it in a place in your life that it should not be, you have devalued God. And that's idolatry. Now, I know what some of you are going to say. You're going to say, well, pastor, how do I know? How do I know that this thing in my life is taking a place that it shouldn't take? How do I know that? That's a great question. How do I know that enjoying something in my life is, is idolatry? Because obviously what we're not saying is that we shouldn't enjoy anything but coming to church. And you know, I mean, we're not saying that. You know, we're not saying that, you know, when, when, when we get done with church and Avery comes up or Haven comes up to me and says, dad, look at the paper I made. You know, I shouldn't slap it out of her hand and say, I'm not going to enjoy that. You know, I mean, I'm only going to enjoy God. We, we're not saying that. We're not saying we shouldn't enjoy anything, but we are saying, how do we know? How do we know that this thing holds a place in my life that it shouldn't hold? Let me give you some ideas about how to figure that out. Uh, I got some of these from Piper. I got some of these from Keller. Uh, I just kind of mixed some of them or my own. Number one, whenever we enjoy things that are against God's law, that's idolatry. That's an easy one, isn't it? You know, if, 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 you, if you are wrapped up and consumed with an adulterous relationship, that's idolatry. You say, well, how, can you, how do you know, Pastor? Because it's against God's word, Okay. God has told you that's not something you should love. It's not something you should enjoy. It's not something you should give yourself to. And therefore, that automatically, if you are giving yourself to that, it is idolatry. Okay, So, so whenever we enjoy anything that, that, that is against God's law, that's idolatry. Number two, enjoying things, and we kind of said this before, in disproportionate manner to their worth. Okay, Here's what Piper calls this. I like this. Great love for non-great things. That's idolatry. I was watching on the news the other day, and that, um, that vampire series, Twilight, I guess there's a new movie coming out, like the newest one maybe or something. I don't know. doesn't look like any of you guys know either. Anyway, I think, there's, I think it's coming out because I saw a clip on the news where people were camped out. I mean, this whole park full of people, and, and, and they had tents, and I don't know where they got these tents because some of the tents actually had the vampire and his woman. They had... Her, their picture on the tent, like it was the actual tent, you know, and, and they're, they're all dressed up in vampire stuff, and they're, you know, whenever the interviewer comes over, they're like, oh, well, yeah, hysteria, hysteria, 
you know, I mean, all this, you know, and they just can't wait. And then they've taken, you know, a month off of work so they can come see this movie. And, and here's what I'm saying. Okay, movies have a, a, an actual worth in our life. And whenever you love them to the point that's so disproportionate to their actual worth, that's idolatry, right? I mean, it's adultery. I don't care how good a movie it is. Now, I don't know if it's a bad movie. I mean, I think the premise is kind of funny about this gal that falls in love with a dog or a dead guy. I mean, those are, those are both bad choices in my book. I, I tell my daughters, hey, try to find a live guy, you know? I mean, that's what I would tell them. But maybe they're good movies. I don't know. But it doesn't matter how good a movie my favorite movie, or one of my favorite movies, is The Patriot. I really like the, the movie The Patriot. I think it's a great movie. But you know what? If you, if you see me say, hey, guys, I'm going to take a week off. Uh, coming up, I'm going to take my vacation. We're going to go out to California, and we're going to put up tents in front of Mel Gibson's house. And we're, they're going to be like Revolutionary War tents. And, and we're going to dress in Revolutionary War costumes. We're going to have our, our little muskets with our bayonets. And every time Mel drives out, we're going to go, you know, Revolutionary, okay. You're going to say, hey, pastor, that's out of line, Okay. That's, you're going to say, well, what does it matter what you do with your time? It matters what you do because that's not valuable. I mean, that, that, you're loving something in a way you shouldn't love it. You're giving, giving preference and value and honor and time and attention to something that's not great. No, you guys are going, yeah, Twilight movie. So I agree with you, Pastor. But what if I said something like, I got booed actually in the last service. So <laughs> what if I said something like college football? Let me, let me just ask you this. Let me ask you this. How much, how much is it worth? Now, it is worth something. I, I enjoy watching a college football game. I enjoy it a lot better than the NFL myself, uh, but I enjoy watching a college football game. Uh, I enjoy the kind of the rivalry between states and within a state, and I enjoy, you know, the, the kids coming up out of high school and getting, you know, I mean, I, I enjoy it. It has a value. How much value, though? How, how much of your life should it have? How much of your attention? How much of your affection? How much of, of your glory should you give it? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? How much should it have? I mean, at the end of the day, it's 22 guys with a ball. Yes? I mean, it is. So how much of that should you give yourself to? And again, I can't answer that for you, but I'm just saying what, 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 you, what you love ought to be in proportion to the real value of that thing. So you've got to decide what's the value of that. And then how much of my life am I going to give to it? Right? Correct? Now, let's unpack. What else is in that category? Right, your job and your money and your family and your, your eating out and your vacations and, I mean, all that stuff, right? I mean, I struggle with vacation. I mean, if I let myself, I'd dream about vacation, you know, 52 weeks out of the year. And I got to be real careful to say, you know what, Jason? That, it, it, vacation is good. Spend time with your family is good. Spend time with your wife is good. But, but it only has a certain value. And so your love of that thing should, should be here. It should not be here. This is idolatry. This is okay. Okay? Number three, enjoying things apart from the gratefulness of God. Okay? Whatever you enjoy and love and delight in ought also to be connected to a gratefulness to God. Let me, let me tell you this. Here's a, good, here's a good way to think about this. If ever you find something in your life that you love and enjoy, but in order to be a part of it, basically you put God to the side. You know, you say, God, you got... I'm getting ready to go here, so God, you got to stay over here. It's idolatry. Okay, whatever you do ought to be also filled with God, okay? Whenever I take my wife out on a date each week, you know what? God's right in the middle of that, okay? 
I, I don't set, set God aside. I, I love going on a date with my wife, but, but God's in the middle of that. You know, when, when I'm out on a date with her, I'm thinking about how do I bless my wife? You know, how do I encourage my wife in her faith? How, you know, we talk about spiritual things. We talk about our kids. We, we talk about the vision of God, the mission of God in our lives. And so God is right in the middle of that, okay? And, that, and that's, so that's okay because I'm not loving something apart from God. I'm loving something within the glory of God, within the mission of God, within the truth of God. And, and so if you find yourself having areas of your life where you got to tell God to go, go sit down, you'll get back to him later, that's idolatry. If you begin to demand a certain thing as a right, okay? And, and, and really, how do, you know, how do you know that? Well, the best way that I know that in my own life is how do I feel when I lose it? How do I feel when I lose it? You know? How, how would I feel if, if I couldn't go on vacation this year? Now, if that devastates me, then you know what? That thing probably held a part in my life that it shouldn't hold. How, how do I feel if... You know, if I lose it, whatever it is, how do I feel if I lose it? If when I lose it, it makes me bitter against God and it shakes my faith and rocks my world and I've got no more joy, you know what? That thing probably held a spot in my life it shouldn't hold. Final, whenever your enjoyment of something produces pride in you, Whenever it produces pride in you, whenever having something or doing something or giving something makes you feel superior to others, and that's kind of how you find your identity, you know, let's take, let's take your looks. How, how, how do we know? I mean, we all try to look nice, right? Hopefully you combed your hair this morning or did something, you know, uh, put on a clean shirt. We all try to look nice. How do we know when that becomes idolatry? Well, what happens when you get older, when you don't look as nice, when you gain some weight, when you whatever, you know? How, how, is your world gone? You know, do you feel like, I'm, man, I'm, I'm just not worth anything anymore and I don't know my place? And, and I mean, how, how, do you feel, how do you feel about that? Or do you, does having it produce pride in your life? So you're like, this is where my identity is. This, this, is, where, this is where I get my, 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 my sense of worth. That should come from God, not from anything else. So there's some questions to kind of figure out, okay, how, is this thing an idol in my life? Now, why is this so important? Well, it's so important for this reason. Mankind is created to love and to worship God. Okay, that's why you're here. That's why you're breathing. That's why you live on this planet. For that reason. That's not just for certain people. That's for everybody. You're created to love and enjoy God. The chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism, is this. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And listen, God is infinitely joy-giving. Okay? Now, I know not everybody senses that, believes that, feels that, but that doesn't mean it's not true. What I'm telling you is true. God is infinitely joy-giving, okay? There is an infinite amount of pleasure and of glory and of joy and of satisfaction and of security and, and, of, and of assurance in God, okay? And, and if you're not feeling that, it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with God. What it means is there's something wrong with us, okay? It's called sin. Our sin nature breaks us in such a way where we don't see and value and love what we ought to love, which is God. And so if you're here today and I get done with this sermon and you're walking out and you're thinking, man, what was that all about? I heard him say blah, 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 and something about twilight, but you know, I don't know. It's the whole thing's boring to me. All right. That, that may be true. You may leave here feeling exactly that way, but that's not God's fault. It might be my fault. I don't know, but it's not God's fault. There's no deficiency in God. He is completely glorious. He's everything you need. And the question is this, 
Do you see it? That's the question. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 talks about the root of idolatry or the root of sin. Let me read this to you, beginning verse 20 of chapter 1. It says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, the Bible is telling us that, that God is showing himself even through nature. He's showing us his glory. He's showing us his fantasticness, okay? So that they are without excuse. Verse 21, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise they became fools. Listen to verse 23. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. That's the key. That, that's idolatry right there is that mankind has said, God, we're not interested in you. We don't really think you're glorious. We don't really think you give joy. We don't really think you give peace. We don't really think that you get, we're going to have to go over here for that. We're going to have to have a certain kind of house for that. We're going to have to look a certain way for that. We're going to have to drive a certain kind of car for that. We're going to have to have a certain kind of person to be married to for that. We're going to have to have certain pleasures in our life to get what we need because God, you can't do it. That's idolatry. And it's wrong. And friends, anything can be an idol in your life. It's interesting, there's a phrase in the New Testament, I can't remember where it's at, I should have looked it up. But um, it, it talks about um, their God is their stomach. Could food be a God? You know, and immediately my mind goes to, you know, someone with their steak, burger, fries, and shake, you know, bowing down to it, singing a song. You know, you are my steak, burger, you know. <laughs> you, you fill me up. And, you know, and it's like, really? Could food really be a God? But listen, think about this. What if, what if, what if food is the thing that you look forward to every day? What if when you get up in the morning, you're already thinking about what you're going to eat and when you're going to eat and where you're going to eat and how you're going to eat? What if, what if when you're sad, you solve that by eating? What if when you're glad, you rejoice by eating? What if, what if when you're stressed, you, you get relief by eating? What if, what if, what if the thing that, that drives your day is eating? could be an idol in your life, right? Now, food has a certain value. Yes, it does, right? Where, where's the value? It's right here. You know what? If you don't eat, we do a funeral pretty soon, okay? So it has a certain, it has a certain, and so, so you should value food at this level. It has a certain amount of, of, uh, of fellowship involved in it, you know? I love to, to go eat out with some buddies, you know? So, it, so it's, it's, it's right here, okay? But if, if the way you think of food is right here, it serves a place in your life that it shouldn't serve. Television. Could television be a God in people's lives? Could your family be wrapped around television? You know, it'd be interesting if somebody from like another planet just, you know, completely, I know this is just imaginary, but just dropped in on us, you know? And what, what if they just watched us, you know? And, and they said, well, what do these people worship? Well, I know what they do. They all go home and they beat it home and they go into their worship, their sanctuary, and all their chairs are, are facing the, the bright light. And they all stand there and, and, they, and they rejoice and they laugh and, and sometimes they cry and, 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 they, and they, they hold their bathroom breaks to certain points when, you know, then they all run and then they all come back, you know. It kind of looks like worship, doesn't it? I mean, a little bit. Sex. Money, yeah. Jesus said it, didn't he? 
Martin Luther talked about how the root of all sin is idolatry. He went through the breaking of the Ten Commandments. I, I don't know if I have time to do this. Oh, sure I do. Uh, first and second commandment, you know, no other gods before me, don't make a graven image. Obviously, that's adultery, right? I'll go fast. Third commandment, you know, shall, shall um, not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Respect his name, respect his character, honor him. That, that has to do with worship, doesn't it? Now, fourth commandment, honor uh, the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Yeah, what, what is that? Take time out to worship, take time out to acknowledge, to rest in God's provision. Fifth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother. Yeah, why, why do we honor our father and mother? This reason alone, because God has put them in our lives as symbols of authority. And whenever you reject that, you're saying, God, I reject your authority. I am my own authority. Sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. You bet. You know, when you, whenever you kill, you're making a God out of your vengeance, your revenge, your anger. Seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. You're making a God out of sensual pleasure. Eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. You're making a God out of money or possessions. Uh, ninth commandment, thou shalt not lie. You're making a God out of your own reputation, your own comfort for getting your own way, not getting in trouble. Tenth commandment, thou shalt not covet. Colossians 3, 5 already told us that covetousness is idolatry. Every one of the commandments are broken by idolatry. It all comes back to that. What is your God? Who is your God? And so Elijah confronts the, the people saying, look, you gotta decide who is your God. And so he has this contest. He lets Baal go first. Isn't that nice? Let's Baal go first. He even lets the Baal, he lets the Baal people pick their bull. You know, you get the pick of the bull, pick which one you want. You guys go first. There's 450 of you. There's one of me. We're on your turf. Baal's the, the storm God, the fire God. So we're, we're doing his thing here. And so the Baal prophets gather around. They get their altar, their bull. They, they chant around. They, they do all their stuff. Elijah mocks them. Nothing happens, okay? Then it's Elijah's turn. First thing he does is he repairs the altar of God. Why was the altar of God in repair? Because they weren't using it. What was the altar? It was the place where, where the people of God were to come and were to say, we are sinners, we, we, we need God, we need his sacrifice for our sins. It's a picture of the gospel. Nobody been doing that. No, nobody been coming dealing with their sin. No wonder they strayed into idolatry. So Elijah repairs the altar of God, 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel. And then you know what Elijah does? He prays, he prays. He doesn't just build the altar and then step back and say, okay, I'm done. No, he understands that the, that the man of God praying is a significant thing. In James chapter five, it even references Elijah in, in, in respect to prayer. In verse 16 of James five, it says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again and it rained. And so the Bible lifts up Elijah as a man of prayer. So Elijah prays. And when he prays, here's what he does. First of all, you, you can find this in verse um, 36. He, he, he references who he's praying to. He's praying to the God of Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. You know what? When we pray, sometimes we need to stir up our own confidence. How do we do that? We do that by remi remembering who we're praying to. We're praying to the God who keeps his promises. You know, God kept his promise to Abraham, didn't he? Kept his promise to Isaac, didn't he? Kept his promise to Israel, didn't he? And that's the God we're praying to. And so, so Elijah girds himself up. He stirs himself up in reminding himself who he's praying to. And then he asks for this thing. He says in, in, in verse 36, let them know this day that you are God. What's he praying? He says, God, show them. Show them what they really need to see. They need to see that you're God. You know what? We still should pray this way. How, how do I know we should pray this way? Because Paul does in the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 17, he's praying. This is a prayer. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom 
and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He says, God, show them, reveal the knowledge of yourself to them. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what's the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, the immeasurable greatness of his power. What's he praying there? He's saying, God, open their eyes, open our eyes to see your riches, to see your power, to see your glory. God, show us that. He does it again in, in chapter three, verse 17 through 19, if you wanna read it on your own. But, but, but Paul is praying, God, what we need is to see who you are. Because if you don't see who God is, you're going to be bored with him and you're going to go worship something else. Nobody just, no, nobody lives this life and doesn't worship anything. No. You're going to value, love, and give your life to something. And so if you don't see the glory of Jesus, then it's going to be something else. It's going to be something else. It's going to be an idol. It's going to be sex. It's going to be pleasure. It's going to be recreation. It's going to be softball. It's going to be whatever. Work, money, position. TV, it's going to be something. You're going to give your life to something. What is it? We need to pray just like this. We need to be people like Elijah who pray like this. God, show us who you are. Show Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church your glory. God, God, I want want Dave Biffle to see your power. I want Richard Busby to see your love. God, I want Peggy Van Dorn to see your mercy. God, I want Winnie Tennant to see your, your fantasticness. That's what we should pray that. Because the more we see, the more he's the thing, right? And the more we enjoy. Man, you know what's exciting to me is to know God is infinitely joy bringing. I want, I, I'm a big fan of joy. I don't know about you guys. I'm a big fan of joy. I'm a big fan of being happy. So I want more of God because I know that's it. That's where it's at. God reveals himself lots of ways today. Chapter 18, he revealed himself through fire from heaven. He could do that again. Or it could be, more likely, through the person of Jesus. That's what Hebrews 1 tells us. Or the word of God, or, or, or the Holy Spirit opening our eyes, or providential events, or, or through nature. But Elijah's praying, God, show, show us, show them your glory. Well, fire comes from heaven. It's real clear, too, by the way. It's not like my campfire where there's like a little spark and I gotta go, did you guys see that? Did you see it? Did you see it? No, man. This consumes the bull, consumes the wood, consumes the altar, licks up the water, burns the dirt. I mean, it is a clear demonstration of the glory of God. So what happens? People begin to fall down on their face and they shout out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And then something happens that may bother some of you. I don't know. Just some people this bothers. Elijah rounds up the 450 prophets of Baal and he takes them to the brook Kishon and it says he slaughtered them. And we know in the Old Testament that the people of Israel were the judgment, the arm of judgment of God. The church isn't that. God's going to judge, but he doesn't use the church like he did Israel. Okay, so we know. But but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing I want you to see. I want you to, I want you to, to embrace what, what happened there. <laughs> My son, he asked a good question. We were talking about this, and, and he just couldn't get past this. He's like, Dad, did Elijah kill all of them? And I thought at first he meant like all 450. And I was like, yeah. And he's like, no, did he himself, you know? And he's a boy. He's, he's picturing this. That's a lot of hacking, you know what I mean? 450. That's brutal. I mean, really, when you think about that, 
you, you got to be really determined to do that. I don't, I don't know if you had, I don't know, I actually don't know how they died, but they died. But, but here's the point from that passage. Okay, don't miss this, don't miss this. You got to deal with your idols in an aggressive, thorough way. What would have happened if Elijah would have said, all right, everybody line up. It's kind of like when after T-ball, you know, Elijah's on one side and all 450 are on the other, and they run through. Good game, good game, good game, good game, good job, good job. Hey, you tried hard, man, you were sincere. What would happen if he'd just done that and said, all right, Yahweh's God, the Lord is God. You guys, you know, you need to start worshiping the Lord. Man, I bet you anything, a couple weeks, Israel would suck right back in. Does that ever happen to you? you? You realize something holds too much of a spot in your life. And so you deal with it, but you deal with it gently. You ever do that? You kind of put it aside and you pat it and you say, hey, you stay there. Stay there. For real, stay. The Bible says we don't deal with our idols that way. We, we take care of them. Paul says, put to death what's fleshly in you. Now, don't kill anybody. Okay? I don't want anybody after church. You've been an idol in my life. No, no, no. No. But maybe, maybe a relationship has been an idol that needs to stop. Maybe... Uh, Maybe a certain thing in your schedule. You need to go home tonight and say, you know what? I'm not giving my time and attention to that anymore. Maybe, I don't know. What's your idol? Whatever it is, you need to deal with it. And probably, you're going to have to deal with it pretty aggressively. Because idols, idols don't stay away easily. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your glory. God, show us more. God, show us. Show us your power. Show us your might. Show us, Father, your, your love, your grace. Lord, show us yourself. God, we need to see that. God, we, we, we want to be satisfied, to be secure, to be uh, thrilled, God, with you. Lord, help us to put away the idols in our life, to make room for you to hold the place in our life that you should hold. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.